Hello and welcome to the Men's Corner Podcast. And here with us I have my dear friend John Fontaine. How are you, John? Good afternoon, George. Good to be here from uh, Louisville, Kentucky in the United States. And uh, as we were just talking before this started, it's an honor to be here with you. So thanks for the invitation. Looking oh. forward to it. <laughs> You're very welcome. What a connection. It's, um, it's 10 o'clock here in Eastbourne, England, and you're over the pond. Here is night. It's, it's a night time. So uh, there you go. The wonders of technology. Just got finished work. So uh, this is a, a nice transition for me just to kick back with you and uh, share some roots and stories as you uh, call this. Yes. And that brings me to what I wanted to ask you. I know the answer, but just for the sake of our listeners, our viewers, where were you born? I was born in 1962 in the Bronx, New York, New York City. Um, New York, for maybe some people who don't know, is a, obviously a very, very large city broken up into five boroughs, Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. And uh, I was born and raised in New York City, lived there the first nine years of my life as a, as a young boy. Bronxdale. <laughs> Bronxdale. And what's really yeah. exciting is that your dad actually, as you told me, drove a bus just like the, the, the Robert De Niro in the film, Bronxdale. Absolutely. Um, I have a picture um, somewhere in the apartment here, but I, I take it out quite often to look. The, the characters from, from that movie, the bus driver and the little boy, his son, Colosio. And uh, yeah, that, that's my dad drove buses in New York for 25 years. So uh, I was raised in, in the city on the buses. And uh, I love that movie. Um, I love film in terms of story in and of itself. And movies have been a part of my life since I was a small boy in the Bronx. And so uh, that story is very dear to me because it speaks to me mostly about um, the relationship I had with my dad. Uh, it, some of it mirrors it, what was in the film uh, that Chaz Palminteri directed, Robert De Niro directed it, Chaz Palminteri wrote it. But um, there were differences too to the story. Um, I think in that movie, the father was more loving of the son than what I experienced of my dad as the bus driver. So, but it's still a very powerful film. That brings me to, as you were speaking, I wanted to ask you then, what did you experience in, in contrast with the film? Oh, good question. Um, so, so the memory that comes up for me is that in the film, when young Colosio was kind of being tortured by the, the gangster figure in, in the Bronx, uh, his father, played by De Niro, was very protective of him, very loving, very firm, with, with a firm hand of discipline, but it was almost out of a love, a deep love for him. Um, the relationship with my father from a very early age was was not that he was he was a very stoic, quiet. Uh, I couldn't I didn't know what the word was at the time, um, but it was angry. It was violent, and and how that played out real time for me and my story was, my father was a very violent man. I mean, um, one of my earliest memories of, of 
the interactions with him was, uh, I was a small boy uh, playing war with those little green soldiers. Um, my dad was a World War II veteran, um, survived D-Day, came home, started, got married, started a family. I'm the youngest of six children. Uh, but I was a small boy. I had to have been about five, maybe six. And I was playing. He worked at nights driving the bus. And uh, he would normally get up. We had to be very quiet while he was sleeping. Don't wake your father up was my mother's mantra. <laughs> and if we did, as kids are noisy. I mean, six kids in a small apartment in New York, they're going to make noise. Um, so if any of us woke him up before his appointed getting up time, man, he would be screaming, throwing stuff at the wall. Uh, but he had a temper. And so this one day he was kind of lounging in his chair before he had to get up and go to work. And he was asleep, kind of dozing, catnapping. And I was playing soldiers. And I, I, I had one and I kind of threw it at him. I was, he was kind of catnapping in, the, in and out. So I tossed it through it, but it hit him in his face by his glasses. And it startled him. He came up in his seat and he kind of looked around. He didn't know what happened. And he looked at me and he, he said, come here. And I, I, something in my spirit froze right there when I heard the words come here. Because, um, um, yeah, there had been abuse, there had been beatings, there had been violence in our story before that, even as a young boy. Um, but I said, the words out of my mouth were, no, you'll hit me. And he said, no, come here, I won't hit you. And he actually had a smile on his face as I approached. And I, I took the steps because this is my father. This is the strongest man in my life that I know, even as a boy. Um, so as I got one step closer, one step closer, and within his reach and grasp, um, I took that one more step closer to him. And I saw the change in his face. I saw the darkness come in his eyes. I saw the smile go away. And it was his lightning. His hand came, smacked me, and knocked me backwards a couple of feet on, onto my back and, and off my legs. And I, I just felt the hot tears come, come on my face. And Georgia was instantaneous almost in, in, in me as a child, not knowing what I know as a 58-year-old man. Um, I'm in danger. That was what was planted in me as a root. I'm in danger from this man. And mm -hmm. so at, at a very early age, what came out of that relationship was that I have to learn how to survive and stay, stay safe from this danger who is my father. So that's so much different than what was portrayed in, in uh, the characters mm -hmm. of Bronx tale, because all throughout that story, the bus driver character that Robert De Niro played was always looking out for his son. Because yeah. he knew his son was in danger from the influences of the criminals on the streets. Hmm. Good question. And uh, yeah, man, that's, that's still, I'm, I feel my chest is heavy. So I know that there's still a weight to that story that has followed me as a man 
So. Uh, Speaking of danger, what did Bronx give you for the first nine years? Because nine years are very, you know, I mean, that's where you most, they're the formative years. So what did the whole Bronx experience give you? You were born there and until your ninth year. Was there uh, danger? Yeah, there, there's, uh, I mean, for me, some of my fondest memories of New York are just, I never knew what would be going on once I left the safety of the building that we lived on. We lived on Sedgwick Avenue, uh, fifth floor walk-up apartment, no elevator. So it was always up and down to the top floor for us. Um, but I went, to a, I went to a Catholic school called Tollentine in the Bronx, a very well-known school there. But in the early 60s, the, the nuns and the priests kind of had this contract with the parents. Hey, the parents said, you discipline our kids as you want. And sadly, that also involved, you know, beatings at the hands of nuns, if you can believe that. Um, when I would leave the apartment, I, you know, I'd be with my older brothers going to school. So I, I was kind of shepherded by them. I felt some protection around two of my older brothers who also went to the school at the same time. So I, I kind of learned from them how to have developed some street smarts, even from five to nine. Um, and then I made friends at Tollentine and we would leave school during the day, recess, lunch, after school, hang out together, come home on the buses together. So there was like this freedom as a young boy to be in this bustle <laughs> and the streets had a sense of danger to them. Um, you know, crime was starting to rise in the late 60s before we left early 70s. So the city was dangerous. Um, one story that, that also came up for me as I was thinking about this was uh, my friend Michael McGovern, who was one of my best friends at Tollentine. We were standing on the steps outside school one day and uh, this strange man came up to us and we were just boys, uh, probably about third grade this is, so probably eight years old. Um, and he handed me something in this uh, cellophane packet. It looked like two little red pills. And he gave it to me. He said, here, kid, take this. And I said, okay. And I kind of looked at it and Michael looked at it. And he, Michael was just like shaking his head no. And the guy said, don't worry, you'll enjoy it. Give one to your friend. And it just walked away, disappeared. And so I put, the, put these things in my pocket and I totally forgot about it. So um, come a couple of days later, you know, my mom, was a stay-at-home mom taking care of five kids and a husband, um, or six kids, and she found <laughs> these pills in my pants. And the next thing I know, um, we're getting visited by two New York City police detectives at our apartment while my father's at work. And my mother swore to me, don't tell your father, but we need to know what's going on. And so the detectives started questioning me, asking me what the guy looked like. The pills turned out to be some sort of acid that were that was in the pills that they they tested. So they were very concerned. But uh, man, I mean, 
my mom didn't like get violent or angry with me. She had that capability, but she rarely went there. But um, yeah, the visit from the cops scared me. And I, and I kind of thought about, okay, and there, there's, there's some things out in the streets that I got to learn more about. I, I got to get an education outside of my brothers um, that they gave to me. I had to figure things out that what's safe, what's not. And hey, man, there's really danger here because I, I was scared to death from that visit from the police. They were not messing around. They, they you know, I wouldn't talk at first about what happened. And my mom was trying to intervene on my behalf, but the cops, man, they just were really brutally honest, blunt, you know, no effing around here, man. We need to know. You need to tell us. So I felt that pressure. And we had New York City Police Department in our family history. So I'm not, I'm not unfamiliar with how law enforcement works, what goes on, but I, I kind of got scared in a good way for me as a young boy to learn more about the dangers that are outside the door. So I have danger at home. Now I have danger in the streets. And I know I have danger at school because I'm getting hit by nuns. So uh, danger. <laughs> danger. What a theme for a childhood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. So this is, again, most of my memory flows from the age of five. So that's just how I remember. So those first four years of memory growing up, being present to my own story, yeah. I mean, danger was a theme that I couldn't escape at all. Hmm. When did you learn to write and read? Do you remember? I, very much so. I'm gonna take a little sip here. Me too. It was also during those years in the Bronx. So one of the things I love is film and story on, on film and TV. Uh, not a lot of general television, but good stories that are told. Um, so I used to be a fan of these old time black and white uh, Universal Studio monster films as a child. Dracula, yeah. Frankenstein. Wolfman, The Invisible Man, The Mummy. I have the collections here in my, in my DVD collection at home. I still watch them because they draw me back. Yes. yes. I was fascinated by these films. And I, I would start at it, literally at the age of five, I started to hand write out in pencil and in paper monster stories based on the films that I, that I love to watch. And I would write these stories out for my family, to give them to my mom, to give them to my dad to read, to give them to my brothers and sisters. Now, not all of them did, but I found that's when I literally started to write stories and, sto and writing stories then traveled with me. When we moved from New York in 71, we moved to upstate New York, about a hundred miles from the city to a very small town. Uh, you're, you're from a small town, I believe. Oh, I'm from uh, a village, well, yeah, even smaller. <laughs> right. So it was a village. It was called Kuksaki. Right. And on the Hudson River, a couple of thousand people, maybe less than 2,000 people. But it was, it was a village. So um, you understand what village life is, life is like. Everybody knows. Everybody uh, yeah. else <laughs> knows stories. 
Um, so writing continued with me there. I would write um, stories just about, then I started to get involved from like when we moved there from nine, I was there, we were there about six years before I started high school. So, you know, roughly nine to I guess 15. And at that period, I started to get fascinated by the law, law enforcement. I wanted to be an FBI agent. I also wanted to be a magician. I was fascinated by magic. I uh, trained myself to do little tricks and do shows for my family. So I'd actually start to write out these uh, handwritten newsletters about magicians and magic, and also stories about uh, cops and robbers, FBI agents. I was fascinated by the early stories of the FBI, especially in the Depression era, when they went after gangsters, gangs, uh, yeah. stuff like that. And uh, so I, I found myself writing stories about magic, about law enforcement, cops and robbers. And it was in those days, pretty much by the time I got to 15, that I started to toy around with the idea of keeping a journal, some sort of book of story of what's going on. I mean, obviously back in that time, I don't, I didn't find a lot of like journal books like we know of today. Um, mostly it was like little diaries for girls, female, <laughs> yeah. in the locks and stuff. <laughs> Pink. And I had one of those, it was, it was blue. It was, so it was a masculine color to me. And I remember that was my first foray into keeping something about my story, not a story about werewolves or vampires or Frankenstein or FBI or magicians, but something about me. And I can, I don't have that book anymore, but I can still remember talking about how I was starting to come out of the shadow of my older brothers and sisters stories wow. and how I was developing my own friendships. I had an interest in music. I was in the band. Um, so, so how old were you again when you started this first journal that you don't have now? 14, 15 14. when I started wow. keeping what I would call a journal. Yeah. Wow. That's that's amazing. And you know, you mentioned music. Because um, for me, I mean, we'll go back on the movies because that's, I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. But what was the soundtrack of your childhood? Like those years, let's say the first five years you remember, then the second five years or the third five years. Do you remember any of the of the songs that were with you at that time? I, I do. George, these are great questions for, from my heart and the story. Um, so going back to the Bronx, okay, so a family, two parents, six children, we all listen to music, okay? So my parents, uh, I remember my mom literally used to go see Frank Sinatra perform live at oh, the wow. Strand in New York City. <laughs> so it was always Sinatra playing. My dad was in the big band, so there was always big band music playing. Um, my oldest brother was into the Beatles and the Stones, so that music was playing. We all had these little, very inexpensive record players, and there were a few of them around the house. Um, but my fondest memory of music was transistor radio. 
So I had a little expensive transistor radio that I would tuck under my pillow at night and just listen to music. And so one of the first musical influences for me was the story, West Side Story, yeah. about two gangs in New York City based on the on the story of Romeo and Juliet. But the music to me was telling me a story, but I always had the transistor under my pillow at night. Um, so there's always music in the background, somewhere in my head. I was always, I was starting to connect what was happening in my life to music. Um, music gets me very emotional. I, I can't imagine a life living without music for me. I always have music, I've always had music, um, but it was, it was connecting to my heart in ways that when I was hurt, when I was sad, when I was afraid, when I was angry about what was going on in the house, what was going on at school, uh, I started to hear the lyrics of songs and started to connect bits and verses of songs. Especially For me, the Beatles were huge. I mean, even as a young boy, that British invasion into America with their music, um, I was always, always listening to their songs and really resonated with them. So moving on in the story, when we moved upstate, um, everybody kind of had their own rooms. We, we were actually, my father and my mother bought a, a 100 year old home that used to be a two family house. So we all ended up now having our own rooms. We're in the Bronx apartment. That wasn't, that was impossible. <laughs> uh, and then everybody had their own stereos and everybody had their own record collections. I used to sneak in to my brother's rooms or my sister's rooms when they weren't there and kind of listen to some of their music. Again, my uh, oldest brother, Mickey, Stones, Beatles, you know, Hendrix. Uh, next in line was Nancy, my oldest sister. She was into the folk music, Cat Stevens, Joni Mitchell, um, all of the folk music of the 60s and the 70s. Next in line was my brother Jeff, who was my hero brother in the, in the story. Um, he was uh, prog rock, like yes, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, Led Zeppelin, all of that. Uh, next in line was my brother Tim. He was into Chicago a lot. So I, I, I really love, that's, that's another major group for me. And then my sister Amy was like into Elton John, Carpenters, kind of soft rock, soft music. Um, but for me, as a, as a young boy, teenager, two oddly different groups came. I, I kind of claim that, so all my older brothers and sisters had their groups. And so I found this group called Rush from Canada. Uh, yeah. a, a three, three musicians, absolutely phenomenally talented. I started to play drums at that point in my life. Had a very cheap, my, my parents, they didn't make a lot of money, so the drum set they could afford to me or to get for me it was very small, very inexpensive, but practicing playing to Neil Peart and Rush was, was like mentoring me. And I'm no way. I mean, to me, he is the world's greatest drummer um, was he just actually passed this past year in January from, from brain cancer. Um, and in this group kiss, which is totally crazy because it's just like, Theatrical, bombastic music, heavy metal, hard rock, driving. So these two 
were my my groups that I found that I kind of latched on to. But um, yeah, great question, because I mean, and from that point on, music really, as I started to write more, as I started to capture my story in journaling for real at the age of 17, music and writing together, always. I, I really can't write without music. I, I have to have music, I choose to have music playing when I write. If I'm journaling, if I'm writing something on the computer for myself, fiction writing, nonfiction writing, whatever, I, I have to have music because the stories of song are so interlinked with my emotions in my own story of life, so yeah. So can you actually write while a song is on with the lyrics and everything? With the singing, I, I do. I I, <laughs> I guess it's over decades of training because it's yeah. once I found. Oh, it's a good memory. Once I found where my heart was in terms of how I started to capture my my emotions in my writing in journaling, um, the stories and music started to infiltrate my heart. So I, I get what you're saying about the hearing a song and I'm trying to capture my own thoughts from my head or my heart onto the paper. But I've had this wonderful, I'll, I'll use the word, a spiritual connection to music my entire life. And I find it fascinating that whatever writing I'm usually working on Somehow, some way, a song or more than one song that I'm listening to as I'm doing writing matches perfectly to my heart. It speaks something spiritually comes from the message, supernaturally, whatever, yeah. into my heart, matching the lyrics in, from the song in my head through my heart to what I'm writing. And it might actually be reversed where I'm writing something very painful. And I hear a song that says something about that. It's like God's hand is just drawing it out of you with the help of music. Music is the medium. Yeah. Incredible. I'm really impressed that you could actually write with other words in the background. You know, I've done it with... I um... it that way. <laughs> it's probably a discipline that I didn't anticipate having or, or developing. But yeah, I, I see your point about... And I know writers, some writers don't do that at all. They, they just need the peace and the quiet. And, that, and that's, it's beautiful both ways. So, but yeah, and, and the last thing about music is the connection to the pains and the losses and the hurts in my story. Um, I, it's like treasure. Music's like treasure to me because um, so many years and now decades of life and living in different music, different times, different seasons. Um, I, I still love to have music move me to tears, move me to joy, to dancing, move me to thinking more about what's going on in my heart and feeling it. But yeah, um, the power of music to uh, heal what's hurt me has also been a, a huge gift that I, I couldn't anticipate for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's so much. There's so much there that we could explore. But here's another question that sort of came to me when you mentioned Kiss. You had Russian, then Kiss, and you mentioned theatrical. So 
Did you ever want to become an actor or get involved with drama or that kind of thing? So the short answer to that is no, but the real answer to that is my entire life has been a drama. <laughs> movie, this unending movie, never-ending movie. I love actors and yeah. actors. Fascinated by, I'm fascinated by directors and how they direct, screenwriters, how they write, actors, how they act, cinematographers, how they film. I love it. I love film and I love the story, but... And it's a it's a good disruptive question, George, because it, what it brings up in me is um, I, I don't know if any of your listeners or, or your platform is familiar with the book Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, but he talks about this this poser every man has, this kind of fig leaf men wear, and the false self. Yeah, the false self. He says something really disruptive to me is that when I when you meet a man, he says what you're seeing is a brilliant disguise. And so, no, I was never drawn to be a, a stage actor or a film actor, but I have, I have literally acted so much in my life from the false self, wearing a mask, <laughs> putting on roles. You know, I'll try out a role in my story sometimes, how I treat myself, how I treat others. So, yeah, I, I acted a lot and what, and sadly enough, I mean, for me and my story as a man, that ended up working really well. And so I, I learned again in my teenage years, okay, so from the Bronx story, danger, danger at home, danger in the streets, danger at school. Coming upstate, there was a piece, there was a five year tranquility of peace in my story and in my heart and then uh in 1976 my parents decided to move from new york to louisville kentucky my oldest brother had gone on to his life met a girl in louisville got married they had a child um and and my sister-in-law's mom passed away and a house became available here in louisville so my parents decided okay we're going to move to louisville to be near our first grandchild. And it literally ripped me out of, you know, that period of time uh, where a young teenage boy goes into high school and I was developing all my own friends, my own identity, my own sense of peace out of the violence. It was still violence going on from my father between my mom and my dad. They fought constantly over money. There was violence in our story. Um, but somehow I was developing peace in this, in this village. And then we were, we were ripped out. Of, I was ripped out of that with the family and, and we moved to Louisville and, uh, oh, so much anger, so much anger to, to lose what I was desperate to have love, connection, friends, my own story, not, Hey, this is. Mickey's brother, Nancy's brother, my own identity. And um, I, I learned then two things, okay? My anger, man, this is hard. My anger was, was almost weaponized at that point. I knew my anger could hurt people. So I'm 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, so I was very tall, young. 
So I knew I had a height and a presence. Um, and also those years in the Bronx, they made you tough. You, you developed, yeah, I guess, thick skin. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I know it wasn't a long period of time there, but there was something in the DNA of my father. And my father's family came from Poland originally. Uh, very hard people, very stoic, very tough people. Yeah. My mom's side of the family was Irish. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, that, that toughness, it was, is in my DNA. So, um, what a cocktail. Yeah. What a, <laughs> <laughs> the acting part, yeah, came online. I mean, really, because when, when the story ripped me out of peace and put me into this place, I didn't want to come to Louisville. I mean, I didn't. I was very angry. Two of my brothers actually had to take me into the basement of our new home in Louisville when we got there because I was so angry at the family. I was, I was hateful to my parents. I was cursing them. I was just literally just making everybody walk on eggshells around me because of the anger. My brothers took me down to the basement and tuned me up. They, they put, a, put a beating on me and said, you can't do this anymore. Um, get, get over it, get used to it, we're here. And so that's why I said my anger got weaponized. Um, but I also realized now I have to pretend who I am because I went into a school, a public school here in Louisville, and it was it was not a good fit. We were learning stuff I had already learned like two years before in upstate New York. So I came to my parents. I said, I, I this isn't work. This isn't good. I'm not happy. And they actually listened and. And they made huge sacrifices. They put me into a private Catholic school here in Louisville, a very good school, it's a sales high school, but it was an all-male high school. And so I lost all of the connection to, to girls and females that I was developing and had developed in upstate New York. And so they didn't, they didn't really welcome me with open arms at the sales because I'm this New Yorker. I'm a Yankee, and, you know, Southeast, so yeah. Louisville is Southeast. So they made it really, really tough. And I had a gym teacher called Ron Madrick, and he was from Chicago, so another tough guy. Uh, so he, he saw what was going on. And I remember one day in gym class, um, he laid down the law to my entire section of classmates uh, in no uncertain terms and in some of, in some language that I'm not going to repeat here, but he laid it down. He said, man, th this guy is here. He's one of us now. And uh, you can learn a lot from him. But two things. I felt protected. So I felt something of a father mm. in him. I wasn't getting from my father, Michael. And on the flip side of that coin, I knew that, okay, I'm not in a place I want to be. I'm not in a place I'm accepted. So I have to act in a certain way and become an actor around people. And that, that's where I actually developed that skill, that false self. Hmm. It's very refreshing when you meet a man in school and probably you don't meet them today because they're not even allowed to say what they want to say. But a man like this who would step in and protect and yes. and that's you know we see that just in the films now coach carter and people yeah. like that but it's so refreshing when you just see a fragment of that in somebody in an official out there it's yeah it's yeah. a father it's a fathering thing it's a bit of the fathering you never had yeah. 
father and the other father figure there that played a huge role in my story was a, was a Carmelite priest, Father John Coleman. Now he taught English. And so I had an amazing string of English teachers at DeSales High School here in Louisville that then encouraged and shepherded and you know mentored me in this love I was having for writing that was developing. And uh, Father John was just absolutely pivotal in my story to, again, from a father figure perspective, to speak into that which I didn't really want to show people. Yeah. Because, you know, are they going to like my writing, not like it? But he saw, he saw something in me that I didn't, I was afraid to, to see in myself, a talent, a gift. And he just flat out encouraged me to keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. And by the time I graduated high school, you know, I, I had gotten some honors, some accolades in English, in writing. And so there was this message coming from that, from his fathering that, um, you know, something in me is speaking, wanting to get out and mm. be story my mom was very creative she loved to paint and she loved to write so I, I also as a young boy going back to New York and upstate and in Louisville she encouraged me to read I was a voracious reader as a young boy read encyclopedias read dictionaries read anything I could get my hands on <laughs> she encouraged that but she was not very encouraging of my writing talent so there was an opposition there and it felt like a jealousy that, yes. oh, yeah. you're, you're, you're encroaching into what makes me feel safe. She, she felt very safe when she painted and, and, and was a creative. And so, you know, she found solace there, but then she didn't really want to, or maybe she didn't know how to encourage me. So that, that encouragement from Father John. So, those years of 16, 17, and 18 were where really stories started to pour out of me. I started my first journal as a young 17-year-old, and it was right before my 18th birthday, and that was, that was the start of, of a journaling history for me that's never stopped. Hmm. Well, another interesting thing I wanted to ask, when you entered the girls' school, during your time there, um, the, the girl school, <laughs> the old boy school, obviously, yeah. And if you entered the girl school, that would have been heaven on earth. But <laughs> um, do you think that part of you that was more creative and connected to your mom, because that's where a lot of your creativity comes from, to the feminine that drew up from the feminine, do you think that that part suffered by not having exposure to the feminine? Still painful to think about. I'm 58, so I'm going back 40 years in memory, dude. G great question. Um, yes, there, there was a longing as that young teenage boy um, towards the feminine. Um, my mom was a beautiful woman. So, I mean, uh, so I, I was exposed to beauty. Um, I remember even as a young boy being in love with I Dream a Genie on TV, the character Barbara Eden played, just the beauty, just drawn to it. 
And then so through story, TV, and movies, I from a from a young boy's age, I, I was like, oh, this is too much. This I, I could look at a beautiful woman forever. I was just like tongue-tied sometimes, sometimes not. And then that, those years before we moved to Louisville, yeah, I started to develop the nerve and the skill of how to ask a girl out to the dance and dance with her. And so that was part of what was stolen mm-hmm. when the family moved to Louisville. And, and again, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents in hindsight, they're both deceased, but they made a huge sacrifice to, to send me there financially. But something was lost or stolen in the story for me in the connection to, to femininity, beauty, the attraction of my heart. Because again, George, a lot of the, the movies that I loved and the music I loved, the core of the message was romance. Mm. The love story, the, the hero coming in to rescue the maiden or whatever. I mean, yeah. just the love story. And so in those early times, 16, 17, 18, also what came into my head was, I don't have the reality. Yeah. I don't have the interconnection. I don't, I'm not like every teenage boy kind of stumbling around with it, finding his, his, his sea legs with women or his young girls or the feminine. And so I didn't have that. So. I started to create fantasy in my head of, okay, if I don't have it and I've got all these thoughts, let me create it in my head. Let me create a love story in my head with a beautiful girl my age, whatever. And um, yeah, so so there was there was a lot of pain, a lot of loneliness in those those high school years for me. Um, it, it was it was brutal loneliness. I'll use the word brutal because it was brutal. Um, I didn't know what to do. I mean, even in the story before that, um, pornography was entered in. It, it, before we moved to Louisville, I. I I stole a pornographic magazine from a store and and my mom discovered it. And it was that time when I, it, it was strange. It, I was I was having the interactions with the feminine as a, as a young teenager at school, but there was something in my family story that was broken and the dysfunction of it. And Like every story. Uh, yeah, like every man's story, everybody's story, but I, I'll use a specific example. You know, my one of my older brothers was accused of molesting a younger girl in the village. So there was this intense shame mm. that came upon our family. I remember the family of the girl came to our house, and our fam. My parents called all of us into the living room. The other young girl's family came, they were all together. And of course they were shouting and accusations and threats and all this stuff around my brother's actions. Um, so I, I started to kind of make this weird jigsaw puzzle in my head about sexuality and brokenness around it. So when I stole the porno mag, you know, that was at an age, probably 12, 13, I discovered like most young boys do masturbation. So I tied those two together. 
it was pleasurable. I, it was it was pleasurable to me. So my mom found the magazine and one day called me out and said, we gotta go take a ride. And we took a ride and she just unleashed this fury and anger on me. She, her, literally her words were, you're as dirty as your father. And she, you know, she slapped me a couple of times. I was crying, weeping. So she, she put a, it, it was a, some sort of like a curse I feel on me, on my soul as a young boy, experiencing sexuality, experiencing connection to the feminine. She shamed me. So, and then ripped out of that story into Louisville with no access to the feminine. So, like I said, it, it became a fantasy world, twofold. For me, it felt good and bad. Yeah. The good part was I listened to music. I, I connected with the love stories in film and TV. And I would fantasize about the girl I was going to find, date, marry, fall in love with, you know. And then the flip side was just, you know, acting out from the shaming that was put on me. And the, the brokenness in, in the family sexuality story started to taint everything inside of me. So I, I projected that onto my mom, onto my sister, on, onto women in general. Yeah. Again, young age, 17, 16, 17, 18, um, where the, I had the both end of that. It was like, man, I love the idea of love and romance and uh, getting that into my life with, with a girl or a young woman as I was becoming a young man. But then this haunting of what was broken in, yeah. in it from family that was almost passed down to me and that I, I didn't escape because honestly, it was just pleasurable. No, it was just pleasurable. And when parts of you are hidden, um, you're going to get romance or the closest thing that comes to romance anyhow. People do it through food, too much television, numbing yourself anyhow, porn whatever relationships but you know with me the same when i was growing up parts of me remained hidden because i wanted to be that guy who is in love in romance and i i didn't even know that actually actually being in touch with love doesn't mean being in touch with a woman at all a lot of love and romance comes through a woman because let's face it the beauty and but once you get in touch with that side of you that is that can connect that was made to connect to a woman this way then you become a this lover guy that, that is in love with life the trees and the birds and you write poetry and you become more gentle in yourself, which is what I never had. You know, I had it in my head like you, I wanted to be, but then the dark, not the dark side, but the hidden side of me, which believe you're dirty, you're shameful, then you take pleasure in other ways. And even later when I connect with women, I didn't connect with them. I did not connect. I took from them and maybe they took from me, but I didn't go to offer, to open my heart. I just took because that's when you're hidden, uh, you can't bring this part of yourself to the front to say, there you go, that's me. You don't show me. You don't make eye contact full so they can see into your soul. And did you see in the day? So no, no, no. We just take from one another. We use one another. That's a broken world. That's, we're all broken. And, you know, that, that's the best that we can do. I mean, again, you know, with the help of the healing journey and the help of God's hand, 
then these parts of us can be redeemed and brought forward and then life is different but i totally relate to what you're saying yeah in fact my yeah brokenness started very early yes can i ask you something about that yes please yeah so you, you were talking about the hidden part um and also having that natural desire in the heart to connect to the feminine did it, did it feel like a civil war was going on in your story as you were growing up as yeah. a young boy young man that both sides had their ground that they wanted to keep yes and yeah did you feel like uh, maybe you felt it that i can't give up either ground because something in me says that would be betraying who i am well it was a lot worse than that it was that the the part of me that was in the light the part of me who consciously which consciously wanted to meet a woman and then become you know you watch the films and he meets the one or she meets the one and then they finally have the romance but what they don't tell us in the film is that you first need to become the one to be able to actually meet somebody like that you know if you're not in love with with love itself uh, meeting a woman she can access this part so for me it was like the dark part of me not dark the hidden part of me that was in the darkness and that was doing dark things um that part of me had the lighter part as a hostage yes you could fantasize little boy but actually you ain't going nowhere <laughs> basically yeah thank I mean, you eight years old i was when i first discovered that this world not like teenagers eight years old magazines my brother's room whatever and then the girls walk by and me behind this uh, and um, most of my schoolmates they 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 had interest but not as deep as me and and yet you know i had this light that was longing you know for not only just for one woman but actually for romance and now i i realized that it can be so beautiful when you reclaim that little boy when you pick it up out of the dirt and make peace with him and yes you know shadow work I have to, I had to go and still am going through a lot of shadow work and that's why you don't hear in the too much um, because you know these things you can't just repress them they need to be brought forward and embraced but whatever you embrace it loses power it's like it's, it's almost like you're receiving that person uh, regardless of their sins you're receiving them and suddenly because of the love they transform they, they don't want to do these things anymore and they're back into the light like Jean Valjean you know the priest yeah. took the hood off and say oh, you're man. no longer a slave to fear and then he had a new destiny but somebody had to take him back from the dark had to yes. believe in him and that's what we should do with ourselves and that's why when people talk about god doing this but it's like so many people you see talk about god but it doesn't seem to happen like that inner horn is because yeah. god will never do what you need to do he's not a violent guy he's not gonna come down and rip you apart and give you back that little boy how is that gonna work out yeah would you do that to your children yeah no way I love George how you described that that part of you was held hostage. The light was held hostage by what was in the dark. And yeah, I yeah, absolutely. I, I thank you for sharing that because I mean that rings true in, in my own story as well. Like I was talking about this civil war feeling inside of me. Something was at stake. And so for me in the fantasy part of it, I I just you're giving me an, an an opportunity to honor my own story here. I, I've never articulated this part of my story to anyone. 
And so at 16, 17, I, I, as those fantasies of wanting the feminine, but not having it, not having access to it. Okay, so I'm thinking about this. What's the perfect girlfriend? Who's the perfect girlfriend? And I, I was in Louisville, and one day in this uh, new, it was called Newsweek magazine. It's not printed anymore. There was a picture of a young girl, about two years younger than me at the time, um, but she was famous. She was an actress. Hmm. I remember seeing her picture in the magazine, and something clicked in me. I was like, that's her. That's her. And what started was this crazy journey for the next couple of years of, I wanted to make that fantasy the reality. So her being famous, I wrote her a fan letter and she wrote back. Wow. So <laughs> something in me leapt alive. It was like, okay, can I, can it, is it possible to break down the walls like you were talking about, can can the hostage be set free, so to speak? And again, I'm talking from the from the benefit of, of being 58, yeah. not not 16 and 17. But there was this sparse contact between us for about a year, year and a half. So high school's over. I made the choice not to stay in Louisville because for four years I weaponized my anger had this fantasy world about women coming about and I wanted to go back to New York. So I chose this very small private college in up, uh, outside of New York city in Westchester County called Manhattanville. And, um, the female to male ratio was the reason I went on a quest to go there. It was six to one, <laughs> six to one female to male ratio. <laughs> I'm going to make up for, for loss. <laughs> and I did. When I got to college in 1980, I my goal was to become a lawyer. I wanted to become a lawyer and get into law enforcement somehow. FBI, that, that, that dream of doing that was still chasing me. Um, but what the reality of 1980 to about 1983 was for me there was uh, simply sex, drugs, rock and roll. So I was off the rails, totally. Um, so in 1981, I had the opportunity to go, I, I came back after my freshman year. Um, my parents were not happy with my grades, so they kind of grounded me for a year trying to get me to stay in Louisville, but I was, the word hell-bent was, was absolutely apropos for me to get, uh, nothing was gonna stop me. Uh, so in 1981, in October, I had some, some more contact with this young actress and she was going to be in a, a, a cabaret performance at a, at a famous hotel in New York. Wow. And I rent and saved while I was at home before going back to Manhattanville. I took a plane up to New York to see her. And so, so all this fantasy now is filtering down and man, could this be real? Could, could this happen? What I don't want to tell you is in all this time, I was telling my parents and my friends that this relationship was real. So I was pretending, posing, you know, faking it to everybody around me that I knew her, that we were developing this 
romance. And so I went loaded into that situation, to that meeting with all those expectations. And it, it, I, I went to the same hotel, booked a room where she was performing with another troupe of uh, performers. Um, and so I went to New York that weekend with my heart ready to connect. And the story didn't work out. She wasn't rude, she wasn't mean, but it just didn't connect. <laughs> and so from that point on, I'm, I'm still turning with the word hostage. So my heart was like locked in a prison. I mean, so I, I, I remember, and the funny thing was that even after that 1981 meeting with her face to face, and I didn't want much. I said, I'm not going to name her. I said, Hey, what, let's just go for a walk. Let's just hang out tomorrow since you don't have to do a show in the morning. I didn't know the bigger story. Um, I found out later when I got home that she was being stalked by this crazy guy from Long Island, New York. I didn't know it. Had no clue, no, no, no heads up whatsoever. So I'm in the hotel, okay? So I had the conversation with her after the cabaret dinner, you know, asked her, hey, said, let's, let's go for a walk tomorrow. Let's just spend an hour together. I've come all this way. It's not going to kill you. But she said, no, she's very kind. I mean, and I walked away thinking, okay. So the cabaret show had finished, the troupe left. I left after the conversation with her. We were going to the elevators together. And her and the other members of the cabaret troupe got in the elevator. And then this guy just was in front of the, them. They were behind him. He just put his hand up and said, no, you got to take the next elevator. And so the door shut and I, I learned a little things in my life. I watched where the, it stopped on the fourth floor. And then I immediately took the next floor and went up to the fourth floor. So I got off and another member of the troop, not her, saw me. And the next thing I know, that same guy is coming down the hall to me. He says, hey, you stop. And he was a, he was a hotel detective. And he literally put my hands against the wall, searched me asked me for my ID. I said, hey, I'm a hotel guest. I was just coming up to get an autograph. No harm, no foul. This was me acting my way out of <laughs> the situation. And uh, yeah, I didn't learn about that bigger part of her story until maybe a couple months later when I was back home before I came back to Manhattanville in 1982, that literally it was a big deal. It was a big story in the, in the New York Daily News. Wow. That they found the guy in New York City, arrested him, and he had a rifle in his trunk. So literally, she was on lockdown, and her saying no to me was out of her being kept safe. We, we actually had some conversations. Uh, later on in my story, I, I worked for a local paper, newspaper here in Louisville. I actually did it did some interviews with her that went on the Associated Wire Press and stuff. But that heart, that heart's need for connection never happened. And so what it turned into then in Manhattanville from 82 to 83 was, okay, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I did that very well until I found 
a young woman named Patty who needed to be rescued. She had a really bad family story. And I mean, we connected physically, sexually, romantically. And so then I felt a freedom. I felt the captive, the hostage come out of my heart and become the knight in shining armor. So I literally, not only by my actions of drinking, drugging, got heavy into drug use there, um, not going to class, was put on probation, all sorts, of, it was just self-destructive all the way. My, my solution to that was, I am going to rescue this, this girl, Patty. I'm gonna make her my wife. I, I proposed marriage to her. She said yes. And then school kicked me out because my grades were not good. So I stayed illegally on campus for a year with her, living in her dorm room, <laughs> dorm suite with four other girls. And um, eventually, you know, she wanted out of her story. So my brilliant idea, after all of this time, wanting to get away from my family, my family story, Louisville, Kentucky, everything, live my own life, find the girl, find the dream, find the love, find the hope. I said, we'll go back to Louisville together. And, and we did in 1980, late 83, 84. And um, that relationship ended up um, not working out. And so it, what that then propelled me into was just uh, a really brutal story. Drug abuse, loss, um, anger. Then I was forced to live with my family due to my um, irresponsibility and the choices I was making. So I had literally taken myself out of freedom hmm. and literally walked myself back into the prison. So, yeah, and, it's, and that's, you know, we're talking about 80. Three, so right at the cusp of manhood, 21 years, you know, 21 years old. Wow. And, you know, just um, rageful, just full of rage, confusion, loss, okay? You know, the, the five-year relationship with Patty ended badly, and I ended up in a drug treatment center for the first time, but you know, so much damage was going on in my family, and, and yeah, so it just kind of felt like, I was pardoned in my life and my story somehow, but then I, I, I've read this to be true about men who are incarcerated for long periods of time. They find a comfort inside the prison yeah. that they cannot find outside in life. So drugs became bars pornography became bars that I would not let go of. The door was always open. I later found out it was no lock. It was no lock. But you're in control of that little place. So most and people I, wouldn't want to live. Yeah, the anger to my, with my family. Um, I literally lived in that house with my parents for about five or six years and uh, didn't speak to my father. And one of my older brothers and I, and my father were literally in a hatred, rageful, violent. We, we brought violence upon each other. I mean, I had my father thrown out of his own home 
because of it and you know threaten i was thinking man how can i kill my brother how can i kill my father um so yeah it was very so literally that that part you brought up earlier about being a hostage um that's how i entered manhood as a hostage mm, yeah it's incredible thank you for going on that thread because I, I didn't I didn't anticipate something like that coming out so um. neither did I <laughs> as we said you know just talking but it's amazing about the again the lower part um, I've had to come back to my past and literally reclaim so many different scenarios not this time from a point of healing or renouncing things that I've made agreement with in the past like John Eldridge, she talks about agreement and break this agreement. Uh, but, I, you know, I've been doing these things for over a decade. But this time, the most recent experience, yeah, partly with the shadow, but partly with actually reclaiming that little boy. What did you see in that girl? Okay. Well, what does that say about you? Or what about this girl? What? Why did you long for her so much? Well, okay. Well, let's go back. Let's come back. And films and music, old things. And one really haunting film. Um... Uh, which I wanted to ask you about films, and I will in a minute, but let me share a quick, quick experience. Um, I had to go back to all the movies that ever moved me, you know, back um, growing up in the 90s, early 90s, and then late 90s. Um, I had memories of some films, you know, there's so many, there's so many bad things that traumatized me, you know, they, I won't even go into that, but the films that really stuck with me, in over the last five years, I've been really going back to them and investigating them and watching them again, um, because they stuck with me for a reason. I didn't know that. But the fact that the imprint, not just traumatic imprint from a horror movie or some violent thing that I watched when I was a kid. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that just stayed with me and there was haunting that I, ju I just couldn't understand. And, um, and now I understand it a lot better and I had to reclaim that part of me that saw something in that film. And one of these films is, um, you've probably seen it, is The Great Expectations. It's based on the book, but not really. Uh, loosely based on the book and it's with Robert De Niro and um, what's the Gwyneth Paltrow I think uh, no no oh, I don't think it was her I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow and the Dayan guy okay okay yes, yes. Um, basically Robert De Niro plays the convict and uh, so this young guy the boy's heart, he could draw in a very specific way. He could draw with this just black color, black and uh, it's just beautiful in his weird way. We're all weird and, and that's God given. Um, and then, and he was, and I see why I was drawn to this because a lot of the films that I now reclaimed have very similar theme coming from a small community, poor or not even poor, but just, just small and, and just basically um, isolated that you're not going anywhere. Um, you know, so... That's that's how it is. That's how I grew up. But I always long to go somewhere, even if it's not physically, to be something, to be something. Not so much geographically, but actually go somewhere in my heart, in my soul. And um, so there's the girl that came into the boy's life, and then he started to long for her, and she broke his heart. But it's not about the romance at all. It's about what he lost as a result of the romance. And I weep. Now, to this day, and I watch this film, I mean, I watch films all the time, and some films will always stay with me. They always stay with me because these parts of me, they need tending to, they need reminders, they need uh, work. And, and I weep because this boy was saying, um, this guy was saying, you know, telling his story, telling the story back about um, Estella, 
who departed and uh, and she and he said then i lost I, i'm paraphrasing i lost faith in these things in the you know because she was rich and he was poor he was from a fisherman's community and he said i elected to grow up and then there's a very haunting song by tori amos it's called siren and I, I just hear this song and i look at this guy i look at the way he lives and i just feel such connection and such loss of heart because you see because of the girl the girl she was merely a medium she was godsend to actually open up his heart to long it wasn't about the girl but he didn't know it so after that he stopped drawing he stopped drawing he just became a fisherman now i'm not saying that it's wrong to be a fisherman or not to have as much money as he could have had it's not about the money it's about what part of him would have been alive had he continued to draw and then one day when opportunity came that convict is uh, robert de niro you know he survived he he sent he sent a lawyer to actually as a way of thanks to actually um, make his dream come true and he just starts laughing he said i'm not drawing anymore and you see he was very close to actually forfeiting his whole life um, but the saddest thing is he, he he kept it on the girl he thought it was the girl that and and even after he became successful he went under her window and he said something which really sort of really touched me because I know you're talking about God. You're talking about the heart is connected to God, not about God. And he said, anything that is good in me is you. Now, when you put this on another human being, you're just setting yourself up and her for a heartbreak. You can't just see that romance in her. Bits of the romance come through her. But unless you have it in you to connect with her into the greater picture, heartbreak. That's why Hollywood just tells us to chase the one. Well, good luck. I think we should become yeah. the one, <laughs> become that in love with life. And uh, and so for me, I started to reclaim things. The, that lover part of me, you know, is not good just just having it and, and thinking, oh, yeah, okay. You know, now I love life, whatever. After this traumatic healing experiences, I started to actually take the steps, which, you know, people would laugh, especially my family, if they knew, they would laugh. I'm drawing. Um, I, I bought myself a violin. I mean, how crazy is that? I've not told anyone. Well, now I've told quite a few people, but um, only only my wife and a few friends and you guys have told. Um, uh, but, you know, I've not told my dad and mom because they was like, why? And I never had interest in the violin, but there was something, something about the sound and something. And with me, it's something about holding the violin. Like My hands were shaking because what I believed about beauty and grace and the sound, I believe that that's beautiful, but I can't have a part in that. And, and then how can I have anything, you can't have a romantic connection to life, let alone a person fully when parts of you are just not available. So same with drawing. When I started to draw, my hands were shaking and I, I was just tempted to say, no, no, no. Or, or just draw like really fast and just like caricatures where the invitation is to actually gentle, take your time. So we're talking about practical reclaiming of the lover, which first comes through films and music, but then in actually embracing those actions or it could be singing. It doesn't have. To, you don't have to be a singer. It could be acting. It doesn't have to be yeah. anything. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm not a singer, but I love to sing to the music I love to hear, and I, I'm just fascinated now by by what you're sharing about the reclamation part. So can can I dig in with mm -hmm. you? Yeah. With, with a little bit of that uh, into some of that root, and so you know, you you talked about the lover in the man. I mean. In, in, even in the even in the spiritual sense of God, as you, as you talked about that film, God calling the man out of his heart into something greater, not not to put it all into the woman itself. So, 
you know, do you find, and, and maybe this is a turn in, into films, is that do you find more and more as you go, like you talked about reclaiming uh, parts of your heart and story for that little boy's healing and integration as, as you as a man, do you, do you find yourself sometimes either kind of taken aback by what's being asked to be reclaimed through these stories? <laughs> Because for me, man, sometimes I want the nice, easy road. Of <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and maybe, maybe we could talk about later on the, the archetypes, the lover, the warrior, the, the sage, the king. But that lover is so vital in, in a yeah. man's stories. Do you find yourself when, when you, you're moved by films, let's use that as the example, when you're being called to reclaim something for that little boy, or that young man, or you as a man now today, that's like, oh man, this is this is dangerous, or this is scary, or yeah. this I can't do this. Yeah. yeah, the answer is always, always. It does not come naturally. Like, I mean, um, if you had seen me maybe like five years ago, you know what I mean. I look and felt a lot harsher on me, a lot. And people think they don't know about my deeper journey. And I had this girl like five years ago telling me uh, because I had shaved head and then I had hair. And she said uh, she'd met me after about a year. She, she used to know me before and say, there's something very different about you, George. It must be the hair. You look a lot more gentle, like at, at peace. It must be the hair. And I just laughed. I didn't say anything. But like, yeah, it's not the hair. <laughs> it's not the hair. Man, from, from diving into to your platform and men's corner and, and looking at some of your your earlier writings and pictures you're you're i'll affirm that the, those pictures physically to me the, the the impact is tough scary don't mess with this guy you know there's something again use the word dangerous there and i i've only known you physically in how you look now. So that was a learning process for me, but I see the connection, what you're talking about. You Obviously you're you then as you are yeah. now. But there was less of me then, less of yeah. me. And there was harshness between me and me. There was this harshness, you can't make a mistake. You can't, can't be like that. And, and you see, especially because the lover part was missing as well. And I didn't have the warrior part developed to say, no, I can, I can protect myself. I don't need muscles, big muscles. Yeah. I don't need to put up a front. Um, I'm fine. Like, you know, a little boy needs to know he's safe. A little boy needs to know that there's a warrior there that's not going to let anyone hurt me. But then if you don't have the lover, you just, you just yeah. tough. Um, well, let me ask you, who, who initiated you as a man? Well, that has come in many portions and it's still coming and it comes through people. Uh, but sometimes it's just between me and God, you know, with, with the, through the stories or the films or the music and, right. and, and memories of childhood that are painful. So um, I've had, I've had, you know, I've been into counseling. I've had um, many involved in my life and at the moment, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, uh, one of the men who is in my life, but um, it hasn't come through just one person. It hasn't. No, it's a journey. Yeah, and thank you for your honesty there, because it, it is a journey. I mean, from my story, I learned about initiation in 1996 through an organization called the Mankind Project. They, they mm. host initiatory journeys, three-day journeys, literally based on the hero's journey yeah. for men. So I, was, I was 34 
My mom had died two years earlier. My dad had just died that year. Um, my again, so remember the, the the story went off the rails in the early twenties for me. So I'm a dozen years later. I, I'm dangerous to myself and others, and not in a good way. Yeah. So I was in a treatment center, and, and I was trying to get recovery under my belt. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the 12 step models and stuff, but my, my sponsor at that point said, Hey, I got something you might want to try. And he invited me to this thing called the new warrior training adventure, where they took me as a man broken through the hero's journey. And that's where I first started to learn about the archetypes, the lover, the warrior, the sage, the, the king, and how every man has them. Hmm. They're at play all the time. But like you said, if, if one specifically like you used, the lover is missing. Mm. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then each one of these, they, there's a shadow part. Yes. We all have that longing, you know, we all have that longing. So either it's pornography or... Covered men's work. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, you know, fast forwarding, I mean, I'm, I'm not as active, but, you know, my history with, with them was over the last two, 20, 23 years about. So I've, I've gained so much knowledge. Talk about shadow work. I mean, so much has come out of that. I love I love the title of, of your mission, Men's Corner. That corner of, of the world of, oh my good, goodness, I am a man. I do need to be initiated in my journey. Yeah. Spiritual and masculine journey. And there was a company of men who were willing to do that and kind of open the door for me to experience that. But more, it was more so like the door of my heart got blown off and I started to see what was at stake in my journey and my story as a man. But I mean, dipping back around to the movies. Yeah. I mean, so many movies call me up and out as a man to see both those archetypes in play and also as we've talked about the shadow side of the journey too so, yeah 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 i grew up you know i never i never heard my mom and my dad say i love you to my mom never i've never seen them touch <laughs> Unless they joke, which didn't happen much, like after never seen him touch. So, so to me, I wanted to look like my dad and to to be like my dad, and he was my hero. And in many ways, there is a good because I've worked through the pain. I must mention this here. Uh, I worked through ten years of pain from my dad. Now I can see the goods, his heart, then unfulfilled potential. So now I can see and I can move towards uh, the good about him. But then I didn't see. I could just see. Well, that's the man. So you need to be like him. And then. I learned then that if I sang or danced or um, expressed my feelings or, or, or were romantic in any way towards music or, or films, then he didn't do that. So even though he never said, you shouldn't be like this, um, it was an unspoken energy in my house. So I froze. So there you go. Lover is lost. Then the warrior, because he, you're scared of that man. He didn't take you to initiate you. He didn't take you to show you what it's like to be held by another man. What is like to even overcome another man by wrestling or knowing how to throw a punch? And if you're good next to another man's skin, uh, I froze. Even later, I was a big guy working on doors. And when I'm 
one of my friends, big muscular guys, will come and put his hand here and then show me a video on his phone or something. I would freeze and thinking, when is he going to remove his hand? Yes. <laughs> Unless I was intoxicated, then I would always freeze. Uh, but speaking of intoxication, I think it's worth mentioning it about your, because um, you mentioned the 12 steps, uh, which obviously I know some of that, that story, but you became addicted to drugs when you were how old? Uh, it started for me in 1980, so I was 18, freshman in college. Wow. Uh, uh, it was it wasn't this big deal. I was in the in a dorm room on the Manhattanville campus. I was a freshman, but the, we talked about the actor part. So when I was a freshman at, at Manhattanville, starting out, I spent all my time connecting with the upperclassmen, not my peers as freshmen. So I started to figure out, okay, I gotta pretend, I gotta get in with the crowd. And so I, I hung out most of that freshman year. I had my friends who were freshmen too with me, but I hung out, I sat with the upperclassmen, the junior and the seniors at their table in the cafeteria. And so one of, one of my friends there, Brian Kenny, uh, sorry, Brian, love you, Brian, wherever you're at. <laughs> um, <laughs> invited me to his dorm and we were going to watch a New York Yankees baseball game. And uh, I had my friend Danny leave his last name out. Um, so we just watching the game. Danny had a Budweiser. Danny liked to drink beer. Most freshman guys do. And Brian's brother, Jim, was there. And they came out with this little metal tray. And they had some uh, marijuana from Central Park in, in Manhattan. And the only time... I had ever tried that was back when I was in Cooksaki in the village. Uh, I was in a band. I was the drummer. My friend Greg was the guitar player. Uh, had a couple of good friends in the band. And, and Greg and I, I took a puff or two. He had a joint. Nothing. I, I didn't feel nothing from it. So I'm in the room with Brian and him and his brother start rolling these joints and they lit one up and, you know, they kind of offered it out and they, Danny was here and I was there and Danny said no I'm good he had his beer he said no no thanks he actually said no thanks I'm sorry I'm not <laughs> and so Brian had it the, the, you know just here you go the smoke's coming out and here you go and so I looked at I remember clearly I looked at Danny and he, he, the slightest shake of the head. It was almost like he didn't want to say no, don't, but there was something there. And I just, I saw his hesitation and I said, I'm not that guy. I'm the guy who will take it. And so I took it. And so, um, yeah, that, that experience and a couple of weeks later, I went into Manhattan to visit an old friend uh, from Cooksaki, who was now living in Manhattan. He was a radio disc jockey. He was a drummer too. Spent a weekend at, at his place on the Upper East Side, and we got stoned. I mean, the first time ever. Um, and it was dangerous, man. We went out on the streets to score, and he had me looking out for him while he went into the building to get the weed. and. A cop came by on a foot beat at three in the morning and was asking me all these questions. And here's the actor. I, I, it really worked well. I was really good. Um, 
no problems. The cop went on his way. I, I was BSing him about my family being an NYPD, which was true, but I, I took his mind off of what he was really asking me and got myself some grace. But uh, yeah, that weekend with Julian, so I went back to college and um, there was a, a, an all-American basketball player. I'm not going to name any names, but uh, he was well-known as a collegiate. And uh, he, we played a game. There was a pub on campus. So Manhattanville was kind of contained. It had everything you wanted. It had six to one ratio girls, a pub, boo. <laughs> and then now I found out drugs. So I had taken some speed before we had these intramural basketball games. And I'm tall, 6'6", six, six, and Gil, taller. I named his first name. Um, but I ended up taking speed before this game. First time I ever did that. But I literally held him to 12 points in the basketball game. People were freaking out. They're like, who is this guy? So Holding speed him. made you faster. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after the game, he was like, yeah, man, good, good game and everything. And he said, what, what are you on? And he asked me, because he knew. And I said, I took a yellow jacket before the game, a speed pill in a yellow container. And uh, he said, I got something better. And so I went back to his dorm room. And again, I'm like, what is it with drug dealers and these little metal trays? So he brings <laughs> up this tray, literally, George, of everything. Cocaine, marijuana, crystal meth, speed, acid. He said, what do you want? And so after the weekend, you know, trying the joint with Brian and, and really liking it and going to my friend's place in Manhattan and just owned out of my mind, I said, I'll, I'll try some of that weed. And so we tried it and he gave it to me for free, like most good drug dealers will do. Mm. The, the first ones are free. And he gave me some cocaine for free. Off to the races. Off to the races, man. Um, what what the immediate feelings were when i started using drugs at manhattanville um where the pain has stopped hmm. finally and, I, and i'm i gotta confess i'm i i, I had to kind of pray beforehand today because i my sometimes my my language gets messy and i'm just but man the, the and the mess is welcome so thank you the, the, the pain stopped and something felt whole in me. And uh, yeah, I like the cocaine. I like the rush. The girls like the cocaine. They went, once they found out I started to use cocaine, uh, that, would, that was a good connection to girls, sex. Uh, it, it, it was the weed, marijuana, always for me. Um, love at first high, so to speak. Um, so yeah, now I started to have connections on campus. I can get weed, I can get speed, I can get Coke. We had a bar, we drank. I came into college, beer would make me sick, okay, as a 17 year old. By the time I left college, I could down shots of grain alcohol, 90 food grain alcohol, with no problem. So all of that combined the drinking on campus, but literally, <clears throat> excuse me, it was the marijuana 
And and while I was on campus, man, I tried acid for the first time. Hash was big back then in the early 80s, so smoked a lot of hash. Um, but something about marijuana for me fixed something, <laughs> broke in my story. In well, my if I can just quickly interrupt you, I find very fascinating that somebody like you would gravitate to marijuana because with me, it was coke. And I, if, if I couldn't get coke, it would be speed. But something, because you see, you weaponize your anger. You knew you had anger to protect you and you used it to get ahead. With me, I never had it, or so I thought. It, it was in the dark, it was not accessible. I was suffered from depression. And I never had that energy that I could say no to people or um, anyway. So marijuana would just made me, I tried it, but it's like, it made me really even more passive and even more soft. And I, I was sick of being soft. So with me, when I tried Coke, oh my goodness, it was like finally the veil that kept more of myself away from me was open a little bit and that self came and I could speak. And I could talk, I could be, I could be more. And there was more energetic presence. I love that. That's why I got emotionally hooked on it. Not uh, like physically, but yeah, let's go back to, it's just fascinating to see the differences. Well, yeah, I mean, and you brought it out for me as, as you were just talking about the weaponization of the anger. <clears throat> so something about the passivity of the high with pot, marijuana, weed, whatever I'm gonna call it, um, actually then started to connect me back to that shadow part of the lover archetype which i still was so long away from understanding but this is in hindsight i'm talking here something about that high calmed me down rest uh, yeah I, 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 the endless I, striving yeah anger was gone the pain was gone the numb felt good so there was, I started to connect the dots. Okay, this is something I could, because drinking, I, to this day, okay, so I'm, I'm so confession, I'm, I don't actively participate in 12-step anymore. Um, through my work, men's work, decades of it, um, a lot of spiritual work too, there's something, and I don't want to get deep in the weeds on this, and I'm, I'm not against the 12-step model at all, but there's also a rate of non-success in that model that speaks about something, but I'm not an alcoholic. I used to call myself an alcoholic all the time, but the fact of the matter is, after college, when it kicked me out in 83, I rarely drank. There was, there was some things sometimes that but I never gravitated to it as a as a, a crutch or a substance I never abused it so it, it took a lot of work to remove that label um, and to this day I can still enjoy a beer I can still enjoy a sip of bourbon and, and have no self-destructive patterns start but it was marijuana use at Manhattanville starting in the early 80s for me that contributed most effectively to the self-destruction that happened. Skipping classes, um, my, my first love there, Patty and I used to get high together. So, it, so I started to mix that into the story of, not only does it calm me, numb me, you know, the pain's gone, the anger dissipates, but 
she likes it too. So we got this in common. And, uh, but it, it really torpedoed me and I, I couldn't understand for a long time why. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that aware. I hadn't done any sort of men's work on my own heart or story, wasn't initiated. Um, but it, it played its role. So when her and I came back to Louisville, man, it was full on. Um, I did anything I could to keep that flowing in my life. I mean, I worked for places and stole money from them to keep the habit up because I was smoking literally about a quarter ounce of pot a day. That's a lot of weed, dude. That's a lot. And you told um, me a story once, if I remember correctly, there was an instance when even a drug dealer a, who you're buying from warned you to slow down or something? Yes, that was, um, thank you for pulling on that thread of memory. Roots and story, this is called this edition, people. Yeah. So uh, we're just a master here. Um, man, yeah, so this is, this is 1996. My father had died. Um, I, I... This, this was, I'm trying to think of the clarity piece here. So my mom died in 94 of cancer. My dad died two years to the day after my mom. Same day, January 31st, 1996. Um, I was still, man, a pothead. I, I've got a tally somewhere. I don't know the exact number in my history, but... I've had a lot, a lot, a lot of jobs. I mean, like a lot of jobs. And they all, since I came back to Louisville in 83, um, they were all, either, I either lost them or quit them because what was most important was getting high, smoking weed, to keep the pain away. Mm. And as you know, in your own work story, working with other men, the more a man, I believe, uses anything, not drugs, whatever, fill in the blank, to keep the pain, the tolerance, you know, yeah. more is needed to keep the pain at bay. So, so man, massive amounts of, of marijuana. But after my dad died, I got a part of his inheritance. And prior to that, before my mom died, um, I, I started mixing my excessive marijuana use with crack cocaine use. And I, I just say it the way I say it, crack is evil. I mean, all the horror stories I had heard didn't keep me away from it. <clears throat> and so I would go into what are called the projects here in Louisville, which were very, you know, Unfortunately, in our society, you know, where marginalized people were living, um, poor people, they were very institutional looking buildings, very dangerous territory to go into. I mean, you know, it reminded me of, of the Bronx in some areas. I mean, you know, you just don't walk in there on a lark. I mean, because it's a dangerous territory. But that's where I would go to get my weed. And then that's where I found a, a, a crack dealer and so about 94 man I was I was mixing both quite heavily and uh again doing whatever I had to do to get that money stole it from my parents stole it from my work uh stole things to 
convert into money to keep that habit going. And about two days before my mom died in 94, I was coming, the hospital she was in was right across from the projects in the south end of Louisville. And I had just scored, I had a bunch of crack in my pocket. She's dying of cancer in the bed, another brother's in the room. I remember sitting there thinking, man, I don't want to be here. I need to go home so I can get high. And uh, fast forward two years, so I get that money from my dad's estate and man, went through thousands of dollars in a couple of weeks in crack cocaine. And that's the story you brought up. I, I, I had found a dealer in the projects. I was living in downtown at the time in a nice apartment. I had a job at the time. Um, life seemed to have been going well. I had actually put about almost two years of total abstinence in recovery, going to 12-step meetings together. But the, the devastation of losing my dad in the story um, drove me back to crack. And yeah, I mean, I had a dealer who would, I'd call him. He'd go to the, to the place in the city to get it, which was also a very dangerous place. And he'd deliver it to, to my apartment. And this would, I mean, over the course of a couple of weeks going through that money, I mean, I was calling him two, three times a day. And literally at one point he said, man, you, you're doing too much. You gotta, you can't do this much. And I lived in a ninth story apartment. And I said, dude, because I was buying at that point quantities what are called eight balls, which is a lot of crack cocaine. And uh, whew, um, he said, you know, you're, you're, can't do this and I said man your your only job is to come deliver me this because I give you this and I push the $300 across the table and I said I take this which is the, the eight ball of crack I said the next step in time you ever open your mouth to me about this you go out that and I pointed to the ninth story window I said I can always find another supplier <laughs> And so uh, crack, I mean, that story of crack went from about 94 to 1997. And uh, I, I'm, I'm lucky to be sitting here talking to you because literally it, it should have killed me in those years. Um, very brutal, very evil. Um, but the pain, yeah, even, even the numbing effects of that there was that's why getting initiated in mankind project in 96 was blowing the doors off my heart because nothing then was working hmm. no amount of crack no amount of weed but in my story that that affinity for marijuana that need that lust it's a lust it was also a love affair i mean because it was it was I, I, i've hinted at this in our conversations offline but that's the longest relationship I've ever had is with marijuana. And gladly to say it's over, but not that far in the rear view mirror. But man, that, that need for, for drugs, specifically that one was absolutely, I know now because I, I didn't understand what my story was about. I was journaling, like I said, starting from the age of 17. I'm 58 today. We've talked about this. I've, I've filled journals 
48 of them. I've written over 6,000 handwritten pages. I have my story on paper from the age of 17 to today, and it's continuing on, but I still, I couldn't put the story together. I had no context until initiation from a community of men came into the story. And then I started to start to get little pieces of understanding. But yeah, the, the threat of, of drugs and abuse of them and dependence on them and a love of them and a worshiping, an idol, making them an idol. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a big part of my story. And part of what I've been doing over the last few years is going back literally into every one of those journals and doing what I'm calling a harvest of my story. Hmm. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have that on paper because what it's afforded me, George, is the ability to forgive myself and, mm. and ask for grace and forgiveness from God and be given that and have a new context of what was going on written into my story. But um, yeah, that's, that's uh, I've, I've known people who have died from drugs and alcohol. And so I, I don't come at it cavalierly, even in, even in talking about it, it's, it's a part of my story. And I know it's a part of a lot of men's story and mixed into that of pornography and sexual dysfunction and all of that. So, but the, the drugs always brought me to that portion too. But yeah, the, the threat of, of the use and a lot of people have, scratch their heads when I tell them that story. It's like, you predicted the marijuana? And yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that brings me to another point, because we talk a lot about the numbness and um, obviously your journey, your healing journey, you know, that started decades ago and you had a mankind project and you had a personal mentors along the way and you had John Eldridge's work and Wild at Heart in the boot camp um, but you had to deal with the father wound and all the, the damage from your father and and not only from the wounds from him but also from the dealing with the longing resolving the longing for a father which he didn't give you so it's not only the active wounds but also the passive is what he couldn't give you which I think most people can relate to because it's easy to look at it. Oh, well, my father never hit me. So I guess yeah. I had it good. But what about what he didn't give you? And most of us suffer from both uh, because, you know, there's always, even if he was a bit silent and cold, that can do violence to your soul when you're little. Um, very many of us just underestimate and look down upon the little child. Think, oh, no, I was okay. Well, have you asked the little child inside of you? Um, but I wanted to ask you, you've done all this work. You've actually moved against your father in your life, but also um, in resolving the work, you had to acknowledge and, and, you know, deal with that damage, which freed you then, I guess. And I'm guessing, you know, because I know some of your story, but not all of it, freed you to start moving towards him after decades of work. And again, I'm not underestimating the, the work of the father wound. When people hear about respecting and honoring moving towards your father, they think, you don't know what my father did. I'm not talking about this. It might take you 20 years to deal with it, with this rubbish. I'm talking about after that. Why are you dealing with it? So that to move towards something whole. Where, this is where your roots are. Masculinity is rooted from the fathers and grandfathers. And um, So I want to ask you about this. Now, 
did you become more free to start connecting with the heritage of your father, not only inside the view as a what's in your DNA, but also towards him when he was alive? What did that look like? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, George, I love your questions, man. Um, thank you. Because um, so you see the smile on my face. So there's joy. So that that's a connection to and thank you for the framework that it's taken a long time. And the work, as you know, in men's work, man, it's not instant cocoa. It's not <laughs> one, man, it's a journey. Um, so to answer that question, I go back to really one of the only two memories I have of my grandfather, my father's father from Poland, also named Michael. Uh, I'm going to name them Michael Jemolkowski, my grandfather, Michael Jemolkowski, my father. And I, by birth, am named John Jemelkowski. Uh, more will be revealed about that. There is a story uh, there, yeah. There's an epic story there. Um, but my grandfather, uh, they, him and his wife Blanche lived in New Jersey, so we'd come over from the Bronx every weekend to their, to their home in, in Bergen County, New Jersey. And I remember I was a small boy. Had to be younger than five, because it's a very faint memory. Um, my grandfather had the shock of white hair. I have my grandfather's hair. I've inherited it. Um, but he smoked camel cigarettes. So he had a pack of camels in his white shirt pocket and a black comb. And I remember sitting in his lap. It was a nice kind of sunny day. It was just the two of us on the back steps. I just felt safe sitting mm. with him. Wow. And I took the comb out and I kind of playfully kind of started to put it through his thick hair and he took it out and he put it through my hair. And I remember I just put it back in the pocket and as a boy would, a little kid, he'll grab anything. I went for the cigarettes. <laughs> he just took my in, shame me, no memory of anything. He just laughed. There was a laughter to his face. He said, nope. And, uh, the only other memory I have is seeing him in old home movies that belong to my family. The day of my birth, coming home from the hospital, I guess a day or two later, and he was holding me and I was all swaddled up in, in blankets and he was beaming and he was crying, George. Tears wow. on his face. So that's my father's father. And so... Man, I mean, the, the story of my dad, uh, all of it. I mean, the, 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 the violence as a boy, there's violence as a young man, there's violence as a man. And yet, after my mom died, my dad, we were the only two living in the house in Louisville here together. My older brother had been a caretaker. One of my older brothers had been a caretaker for both my mom and dad who were very sick. My dad actually had gone through triple bypass heart surgery, uh, had major stomach issues and surgeries. So after my mom died, my brother just abandoned it all, said, I'm, I'm out of here. And so it was just me and my dad at home. And at one point he had to go into the hospital for a follow-up surgery for about two weeks. And he left me in charge of his home. 
and he left some money to make sure I ate for two weeks. He left cash. Um, I had to take his uh, retirement checks that would come from the bus company and make sure that they would get to the bank. He made an arrangement with the bank to say, John's my son, he can sign for me and he can deposit the checks in the bank. And in those two weeks while he was in the hospital, George, that, that was a period when I was heavy into crack use. And dude, I first I spent all the cash he left me. Every check he had come in to be deposited, I cashed and spent on crack cocaine. And then anything of value in the house, which we really didn't have a lot, I took to the pawn shop and pawned for money to buy crack. And so when he got out of the hospital, he let me know by a phone call, he was coming home the next day and I left him a handwritten note said, I'm sorry, left the pawn tickets with them and literally went running down to a local hospital to check myself in because uh, I was insane. And I was afraid he'd kill me. And uh, he came home from the hospital, didn't have any money on him, in a cab. And he came in to find nothing, no money left. So he went to the bank by cab and to find out that I pretty much had emptied his bank account. And he literally, coming home from the hospital after surgery, had to I'm sure it was cloaked in shame, had to get a freaking loan from the bank just so he could go home and pay the cab driver and buy some food for himself. And so I got out of the hospital, our, our parish priest at that time down the block kind of acted as an intermediary. And so I was welcomed home by him, but, um, Naturally, he was angry, pissed off, rageful. Mm. But for some reason, he didn't kick me out. And so I, I promised, I lied basically to him. I said, I'll, I'll stop doing this. Just don't throw me out to the wolves, so to speak. And he didn't. Um, but I lied and I had every intention and did that. I, I kept taking money from him, asking for him for money under the guise of, you know, uh, well, I'm in such pain over mom's death. You know, I need counseling. Uh, got these tooth issues, which were true, but I would just take the money and go spend it on crack. So one day he intervened. I, I was smoking crack and weed in my room and he smelled it and he intervened and he was angry and he was violent and coupled with what had just happened so recently, he had enough and so he threw me out. And my, my sister closest to me in age came down, she was living in Columbus, Ohio. She came down, her and her husband, they drove me to a treatment center, but I couldn't come back home. He refused to let me in. And uh, he said, you gotta get help and you gotta figure this out on your own and, and get free of it. And so it, it started a kind of a weird journey. This is the about 95, about the year before he died and uh, went into 
detox treatment about 10 days came out got a got a room in a halfway house and started living there and uh going back to meetings trying to stay free of everything and um his plan he he sold the house moved from Louisville back to Fort Lee New Jersey to live with his sisters and uh it was in that period George that he started to father me what I could see at that time, this was about a year before my initiation. This felt like fathering, you know. Your uh, initiation with the Mankind Project. Yeah, within 96, but my wow. dad sold the house and left in 95, and then he died in January of 96. Initiation was in September of 96. So he was starting to father me. Just, he would, he would send me little postcards at the halfway house, hang in there. He would call me at work to make sure I was doing okay. He actually co-signed for that apartment I was living in downtown on the ninth floor. Um, and then he moved and he'd still send me postcards. He'd, he'd slip a $5 bill in an envelope and send it to me with a little note. But he would call me every Sunday evening. Hmm. Wouldn't miss a Sunday evening. And he'd call me and we'd, we'd start to talk about just barely talk about life <laughs> i think having talked about with you about your dad kind of the same kind of man he's not a very talkative a lot or he won't go deep very shallow very surface ah and but you know was he a storyteller as well yeah yeah okay there's something about those men you know you can't get them and they don't have the capacity to talk about the deeper realities of life. But if he was a storyteller, like I do with my dad, that's the that's where we meet. That's the gold. That's the gold, man. So the very the night before he died, which was he called me on January thirtieth, was a Sunday, and the next day was a Monday. It was the anniversary, the two year anniversary of my mom's death, and he, he called me, and he said. You're not gonna forget tomorrow. I said, ah, oh, pop, no, no way. And so uh, our very last words in the conversation were, I love you. Mm -hmm. And here my father, Michael, say, I love you. And it wasn't like a throwaway, love you. Mm -hmm. Literally, I love you. I remember getting off the phone at night and just putting it down and something I can't even articulate today, and I'm, I'm not a novice with words or emotions or feelings or articulating them, but something, you talk about treasure, gold. I felt like I had found some treasure. And the next day I came home from work and there was a message on my answering machine from my oldest sister and lives outside of Washington, DC, and she never calls. We don't have contact. Um, and I just knew when I heard the message, she said, call me. I said, I, I just knew, I knew. And so, uh, you know, I had that gift. I mean, and life on came off the rails again, once I got the money from his estate and everything, but somewhere that little boy we were talking about took those words and just would not let go because he heard what he was always wanting to hear. Mm, yeah. I love you from my father. 
And that, again, later that year, the initiation and, and you know, so much of an epic story from that time through, you know, decades past now. But we were talking earlier in the beginning of this thread about the little boy and you reclaiming things for the little boy's sake and his heart and his story. Uh, you may feel the same way, but the little boy really doesn't want a whole lot but just to be loved <laughs> at all period play with me love me you know delight in me everything else is built on that any exploration yeah. any talent once you feel safe with that man and the woman but we're talking about the man now then it's like a, you know you have this base and then you can just only go up from there so that uh, yeah absolutely so something in my story from I love you has stayed. So, I mean, uh, my journey since then has been messy. I mean, yeah, you mentioned John Eldridge. I, I found that book Wild at Heart in 2008. So that's, a, you know, men's work started to fill that gap from initiation in 96 to 2008. Uh, had a spiritual awakening uh, in 2005. I mean, I, I feel like I did, that was the time through a whole lot of pain and suffering and now something of life taking root in me. We were talking about root and story. So those, that little boy, man, we've talked about this offline, that, that anger that got weaponized, that little boy, I call it napalming the village. <laughs> so much anger in that little boy, but something on the flip side, the beautiful part, the love, the lover took those words from my father that I, and every little boy needs and every man needs to know, I love you. Mm. I love you. So he started to grow something in me. And, you know, that when I found that book, Wild at Heart, I was a couple of years in, in, in what I call a spiritual journey. So I had the masculine journey going on. Now I had a spiritual journey going on. And that book, man, has that rocked my world. And, um, uh, you know, from, from that time over the last dozen years or so, that work that John Eldridge has done through his writing, through Wild at Heart, through, through their ministry in Colorado, I've been out to several of their men's events. Oh, that's um, amazing, amazing. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, man, it, it, it has, it's all of those combinations my life has been literally changed, turned upside down, changed. It's always the journey, always a process of transformation and breakthrough, restoration and healing. But man, you're, you're doing an absolutely beautiful job of pulling on threads with your questions tonight that it's putting something into perspective for me about, I, I never really saw that picture of that little boy taking those three words as seeds planting them in a heart that was so assaulted and saying, I'm going to grow this into something that is beautiful. And I know now that, yes, he's doing that, but I'm, I've done a lot of work to integrate, to help him. And there's a lot that I need to do continuously still to heal that, to integrate that little boy with me as a man. 
the spiritual aspect, God coming into the story, the, the community of men from the Mankind Project over decades now, all of the, the story I put down and now I'm harvesting. I, again, I'm stuttering because I don't have the, the articulation, the words, but it's almost as if those seeds have finally taken healthy root in my story. So when I got your invitation to do this, I saw those words and you, you confessed the other night when you typed those words, root and story. Um, yeah, man, there's something about that journey of fathering. Um, I, I, I can't speak for any other man, but I got to make up every man needs that. Desperate hmm. for it is searching for the fathering, the healing of the father wound. Those words, I love you, to take root part in his story. So I'm in this journey now at 58 of maybe for the first time in my life being okay with who I'm becoming. It's not about what I do, as our friend Morgan Snyder likes to talk about. It's who I'm becoming. Yeah. And that has a lot to do with Michael. <laughs> of and course. Of course, yes. What people don't, don't know, know is it's like yeah. your life is, is built on your father's life. And you see people who are the total opposite of, and I became my dad, physical, playing sports and being a man among men, respected with men and speaking his mind. I became the opposite, not because I had a choice, because I couldn't join him in that. He scared me. Everything scared me, the world of men. So he was physical. I was clumsy in my body, you know. Uh, anyway, whether you become the opposite of your dad to spite him or because you couldn't join him in masculinity or you imitate him. In both yes. ways, you just, it's all about him then. You can't be yourself when you're not authentic. You know, people say, I hate my dad, I never be like him. Well then, you all your life, you're striving, you're struggling to trying to prove to somebody that you're not like him. Then you can't be yourself. And then the rest of us, like me, I used to worship him and thinking, this, he's that righteous man, there's nothing wrong with him, you know, he's that hero. Then you're not free to be yourself because you pre you're too busy keeping that shit. No, 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 I don't want to see him as he is. So when you only see the false and you're happy with the false, then you can't move towards the real and therefore the real in yourself. And that's what I see, this polarized world that you have, even politically, that's a reflection. The world outside is a reflection of here. Somebody, who was it? I don't know, some famous speaker or writer say, um, the world lies in broken hips because man, because man is broken within himself. You know, whatever we see outside, we try to fix the world, but it's a reflection of here. I think it was... Um, that guy that was in the gulag, Solzhenitsyn, he said uh, uh, the line between good and evil doesn't run through outside world through, I don't know what ex exactly he said, but he said it runs through every human heart. And that the outer world, the racial tension, it's a reflection, projection, reflection of what's happening inside. And people, we don't want to face that. And I admit, I don't want to face it. But when I'm faced with it, you know, we have to do the work. And you've done beautifully. You've done so much uh, because of, I can see from your upbringing and the, the horrific childhood, the first seven years, you know, most people can never move past like in their personality. It's so traumatized by this man that uh, you end up all your life just pretending to tolerate just the memory of him, but actually deep down, nothing to do with him. And yet, because of the work you've done, 
uh, and we, should, we, we don't have time to just talk about that trauma that you dealt with because of the work you've done. You can now actually talk about your fathers in such an objective and even loving way. Now that I find amazing. That's a good fruit of the work. Yeah, and, I, and I'm grateful, George. I mean, even in that context of, of what you're sharing there is so wise because I, I believe men need to have that hope, whether they're 18 or 80 at this point. The need for fathering never goes away. I've shared this with you and other men that, that, that we sit and share story with that when I was that young man going off to Manhattanville to do my life, I, I was given not two blessings from my parents, but really two curses. My mom said, don't blow it. Mm. Oh, thanks, mom. Thanks for the love, a mother's love, you know. Trust. Yeah, she was to see me leave the nest, but you think a mom would hug you, kiss you in tears and say, you know, stay safe, call me, you know, do your laundry, whatever, come home, please come home. Her, her, her blessing, which was a curse, I now know, don't blow it. And my dad's, instead of a blessing as a father should, a good father, go get him, son. You got what it takes. I love you. Go be the man you were born and created to be. His, his curse was he'll get what he wants by hook or by crook. And it wasn't until I was initiated as a man by the community of men that I understood how much I wanted to prove to him I loved him by fulfilling that. Wow. And I did an amazing job of fulfilling that just to prove to him I love you. I'm gonna show you how much I love you. I'm gonna take your curse and I'm gonna make it my heart, my story, my life. And I'm gonna do it better than anybody ever. And I did. And yet the real story is that little boy was desperate to hear those words. And, and thank you for the blessing and the honoring of just seeing what men's work is. It's it, again, it's not a it's not a fad. It's not a quick fix. It's not easy as, as we talked about Morgan Snyder's new book, Becoming a King. It's not easy. It's not cheap. It's not quick. But man, is it worth the fight? And so, uh, yeah, fifty eight. Uh, I have, I've always had this thought of, I'm going to live to be a hundred. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but to have something rooted in my story. And again, I, I'd never had that word picture in my mind or my heart about the little boy taking those three words, three seeds and planting them. Trinity, I don't know, planted yeah. in and now growing, rooted, that can't be shaken, that can't be uprooted. Um, that relationship, I, and I hope we have other conversations beyond this one. Would love to. Oh, uh, yeah, we must. But the choice. I talked about it last week, I think a week and a half ago, I sent you and some other men an email. 
called Dangerous for Good. That's the theme of my life this year, Dangerous for Good. But to have that choice to burn the bridges and burn the ships that the enemy against my story had used so effectively to keep me down, keep the anger weaponized, keep me destroying myself, stealing, killing, destroying my story, my heart, literally assaulting, assaulting, assaulting that little boy ceaselessly um, to understand that I, I get to choose now and to make choices to burn those ships, to burn those bridges of that long term, the longest relationship I've ever had, um, to accept the fathering from God, from other men, from mentors, to do the men's work. Ah, and there's more, there's more ahead. Yeah. And it just feels like, man, it, it's almost like 58 years, sometimes I think internally i'm maybe in my late 30s i feel like in a spirit i never feel my chronological age but there's something even younger now where now the work for me is loving that little boy like you talked about really beautifully in the beginning of this conversation um man he's worth it he's he's mm -hmm. worth me doing the work as a man so I could come back with God, with other men, however it needs to be orchestrated, written, unfolded, but I could come back and say to him, man, man, I'm sorry. I, I have to this so bad. Forgive me. I, I, I long to spend the time now with you. Just let you sit on my lap because I'm a safer and a mm. safe man. And you could reach into my pocket and pull the comb out and bring it through my hair. <laughs> I don't have cigarettes, but I sometimes I smoke a cigar, like I said. I know you enjoy that, and so yeah, but that to to come back into the story and do what I need to do, not out of duty or obligation, but I need to heal this relationship with that little boy. And uh Man, that that's work worth doing, and he he's he's ready. He's ready to play. Yeah. He's ready to just feel love and be be loved and feel joy and be safe. And uh, I, I'm worth love and belonging today as a man, and that little boy is worth love and belonging. Yes, yeah. Have you ever read a book book called Homecoming by John Bradshaw? Uh, yes, I, because it was a man in my recovery story gave me a couple of um, books by Bradshaw, and I remember another one called The Flying Boy by John Lee. Okay. Yeah. Really, really powerful writers around Father Wound. We've talked about, you and I have read some of Gordon Dalby's books. Yeah, but Homecoming is exactly about you and the inner child in various stages, like teenager and uh, mm -hmm. writing a letter to him and things are reconciling with him. It's powerful. I've recommended it to quite a few people and it's, um, it's very, very powerful when, when it's taken seriously, like a, like a task, not just a book to read, but it's amazing. Yeah, it's helped a lot cool. at the beginning of my journey. 
Yeah, the application. I mean, you, you share with me a lot of points in your story, George, about how you've applied that to not only your current walk as a man, but going back in the story to apply that to the little boy in your story. You're talking about writing the letter. A friend of mine in, in Mankind Project once said, write that letter with your non-dominant hand yes. in yeah. crayon, with a crayon, and on that kind of school-lined paper that, that kids in kindergarten used, he said, you probably won't get through a line or two before you just break down. Yeah. I thought, when he first said that to me, first of all, in right hand, I said, dude, I, I can't write left hand. He said, that's not the point. I said, with a freaking crayon? He said, it'll connect you. And it oh, did. The things that come up. Oh, my, I, dude, I, I, it, it was about six pages total, but it took me over a week to write because I couldn't get a sentence or two into it without just teardrops on the paper, teardrops on the paper, into the crayon. And I think my friend's name is Tim, and I'll bless him for that because it, I've still got that letter hidden away. Yeah, that's, those are treasures, and so are the tears. I remember my one of my first letters was like, just scary what came out because i've been very divided it's funny how even geographically even historically again talk about archetype and projection onto the land and absorbing what's in the land my country has been so divided to different pieces and these pieces are fighting for uh, and that's i've never met and i've worked with men like since uh, more over the decades ever since i started the healing journey i hadn't properly started it like a month into it and I, men started coming to me first i was doing just personal training and but then into from the physical we started to get into deeper the emotional and, and then spiritual and everything so from a from quite a while men would come to me and whatever tools i had i would use uh, and now i have more than before but so i've seen that i've never met anyone as fragmented as me never like in so many bits and pieces so many fragments of they just talk about the inner child or the teenager in them and i'm like you don't know how lucky you are i'm talking <laughs> yeah. i'm talking about thousand pieces like a huge thing that once has been beautiful has been broken and now good luck 10 years picking up the pieces but i remember one of these letters what came up is like something like why did you leave me here to die yeah. like i don't want to die get me out of here and i had a therapy session and i just felt i'd finished therapy so i thought and i felt i need to go and see this guy it's an american guy lovely older guy I felt need to resume therapy just for one off session. I didn't know if it was possible. Called him. He said, oh, yeah, by some medical I have. I can see you next Tuesday. I drove two hours. I moved back by this point and I had this wonderful experience, painful. Like literally I had a symptoms of a heart attack. Yeah. I, you know, my, my chest tight, my left uh, arm would hurt and I was a healthy guy, you know. And, and he said, don't be afraid. I, I started hyper hyperventilating, just receiving that little boy from under the stairs, hiding in the dark. And, and, and his presence made a difference because I would have been too scared to, I don't know what I would have done. And then I remember walking out of this place, just if all I could do, just keep from just shouting of joy. I remember going to the toilet before I drove away, looking at myself in the mirror. I had to bite my lips not to scream because I saw more of me through the eyes. I said, wow. 
And you know, that was a few years ago. The first thing that started to change after that, I started to write poetry. Now, talk about the lover awakening. By this time, I was writing already, but not poetry. And I would go here on the balcony. I'd already moved here. And, uh, and I had, I'm very rigid. Like I have this religious thing about, I need to write 500 words, you know? And I just, my first blog, you know, then I, every week, whatever. And then I just, I just couldn't do it. And I said, okay, what do you want to do? And what would come out? Poetry, poetry. And expressing of this, this just floating point and say, okay, part of me feels great. Part of me feels, no, 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 that doesn't fit my, my agenda. Yeah. <laughs> but me? It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Out of the violin. It, <sighs> what I like about that story, George, when you tell it to me and, and today, and I've, I heard it recently before today from you, but it's just the, the surprise. You don't have to have it figured out. No, and I, now I know that, but then I didn't. Know. Right, but when you said you held it and your hands were shaking, there's something about that that you already know fits. You don't have to, I don't have to have those moments figured out. And I think sometimes that's the beauty, like you talked about the love of the poetry coming out. Like, yes, a shock. It's like, okay, where's this come from? But it feels good it feels right it, it it puts the just gave me a beautiful image when you talked about the fragmentation i i that's why I, I feel like we are kindred spirits in this journey because i i too rarely have met a man who has been as fragmented as i have like you said i i, I sometimes quietly not proud of it but i say dude you freaking lucky man because not you but other men it's like you don't even know <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's like a mosaic of glass, beautiful stained glass mosaic, and somebody just threw this big brick through it and shattered it in literally into a million pieces. And I believe I, or a man, well, just keep it on me, I as a man perhaps have squandered so much time trying to build it back myself. Where with what you had or what you what thought you had. Right. But in my spiritual and masculine journey, again, initiation by men, men's work over decades, you know, again, the work from from John Eldridge and others and, and the spiritual journey with God is like, no, son, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. I can do that. I can show you how to do that if we want to do it together. But it's not just up to you to figure it out on your own. For a long time, my story, bro, man, I've been a lone wolf. I mean, you know, I'll come into the pack to get fed, to, to have a little bit of company around me as wolves do. But the ferocity of, we talked about the dark or, or things hidden in shadow. Or simply just, you're not being in control. No, exactly. And yeah, control's one of my big, you know, big leaves, the poser. I mean, I, I yeah, as long as I can have control. Man, that, who doesn't, yeah. <laughs> I'm safe. If, if, if con we talked about this before, if control's in my hands, I'm good. Those bar if I have my hands on those bars, yeah, I know I can be safe somehow, but uh, 
the journey of trusting others, other men in my story, other fathering figures, other mentors, other teachers, um, man, it's been huge, it's been huge. And, you know, we shared about this, that's, I mean, we discovered each other through the Wild at Heart Network, and we've been to boot camps. We, you and I have done men's work, not just as a passing fad, yeah, quick fix, you spent a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time doing this, and and journey's not over. Oh no, always continuing. There's always more to do, and so, you know, that's why part of I'm glad our stories have intertwined and connected because I see you as a storyteller. I know you enjoy telling those stories, not only to make parts of your heart whole but also to share with me and other men the stories, you know, that, that's where, you know, a lot of the men's work I did morphed from Mankind Project into the spiritual, doing the boot camps with, with Eldridge and his team. Um, you know, I had a platform, you know, you've got Men's Corner, I've got what's called Maximus Heart, so I'm just gonna say, if other men wanna find parts of my story, Mm. maximusheart.com they could find it there but that's a journey and you know you short, have this blog thing uh it's called the unfolding story yeah that's where and that's where we first kind of met when we connected on uh i'm not going to get into the story of what's outside but that's where some of our initial connector points came and um that that whole site that whole platform, be it what it is, it's just a vessel where my spiritual and masculine journey come together. And I just now am telling the stories. And so all of that is a work in progress. Talk about films, their music, story. Oh, it's beautiful. I love Maximus Hart because you just see you through it. You see, you know, some of the like Johnny Cash and this and that and the music, yeah. the films that you like, and you, you gather information about the man behind it. It's like, just like a door, open door, and you can see into his heart. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank you, man. And back at you with Men's Corner, because it's inspired. I, I talked about it. I had the privilege of sharing one of your stories recently at a circle of men that really spoke to me in terms of that's the risk as a man. No risk, no reward. N-O, no risk. N-O, no reward. But also K-N-O-W, no risk. And then I K-N-O-W, will no reward. And so I, I think that's a beautiful symmetry that in our journey as men together, men doing men's work for quite a while, that... I see you and me with the courage as a man to put that story out there for others. And that's one of the things I've always loved about writing for me, whether it's personal journaling writing, writing to give to others as gifts, or putting the writing out there as I do through that platform is, um, I'm like this, once it's out there, I have no control. Control's gone. You can read it and like it. You can read it and throw the computer screen against the wall, hate it. It could trigger stuff in you. Yeah. Because I know good writing, honest, raw, vulnerable, 
truthful writing um, triggers me. And that's, that's, the, that's the contract. It's supposed to. Yeah, it's supposed to. <laughs> it is supposed to. And so um, the, the giftedness, I, I think that's part of men's work for me that I wish more men would take the challenge to do, to learn how to share the story and also the, the privilege and the honor to listen to story. You and I currently, again, I'm, I'm shielding this, but we're, we're, we're doing that with other men. And uh, man, that, that's also where the action is, is to do that well, you know? Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, John, I mean, that's, that's been a great conversation and we could just keep going on and on. I just looked at the, the time and it's, uh, yeah, it's almost half, half past midnight. Um, but I just, like you said, I think we should have more of these conversations. I feel like we just started opening up some, some areas that we haven't properly gone into. So um, yeah, we're going to talk about films and uh, dude, we could spend a whole podcast I know you can and I can just talking about film. Well, that's one and area that I haven't actually properly gone into. And that was the next stage. I'm thinking, okay, now I wanted to ask you a few questions, but I think to make things more interesting, we can leave it for the next one. Absolutely. Cause uh, yeah, man, I'm smiling again, thinking, man, that would be a blast of a podcast to uh, just spend an hour or two with my buddy George and talk about movies. What, I, I would dig into your your film library and what are ones you watched recently? Like you said, uh, great expectations that stick with you or stuck with you, and you could dig into mine. And we would, I guarantee, we would have different films uh, for different times in our walk as men that still are around and new ones that you and I have discovered. So, man, I'm up for that. So. Uh, well, that's a deal then. Next one, we start with films. And who knows where it's going to end. <laughs> well, you come up with the title. I know you'll come up with a good title. So, uh, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just, as we wrap, man, thank you. This is, um, I was joyful today. I was just anticipating this all day. Um, not getting into a deeper story, but there was a lot of freedom today to um, look forward to this but also warfare. I mean, you know, in men's work I do, and hopefully men that are finding you and finding me and learning more of our stories, understand that, and how to fight warfare well from the warrior. Uh, opposition. Yeah. yeah, so there was opposition last night and today. I was like, dude, what is all this about? It's like, oh, of course. I'm looking forward to spending time with my friend George and talking. Of course, that's going to be opposed. And so, but yeah, man, thank you for the invitation. Um, I, I've said this to you offline. I'm going to say it publicly here. Uh, I'm so grateful that um, our spiritual and masculine journeys have, have crossed paths, but it's not a pedestrian crossing of paths. Um, I believe something bigger than ourselves is up to something here in our stories. God's working in ways that I don't understand. And again, I don't have to have it figured out, but I'm grateful that your story has met mine and is being written into mine, just like mine's being written into yours. And those blank pages ahead, I, I recently sent you a blank journal. Um, 
as a lifelong journaler or a journalist. Uh, I playfully say to, to men, yourself included, oh, let the blank pages bring so much joy. So uh, I look forward to another conversation with you down the road, a blank page hmm. to talk about film or whatever. Me too, John. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to the next one already. All right, brother. Be well. Thank you.